Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And we'll be reading the first 13 verses. Genesis 3, 1 through 13. He is described as the serpent, verse 1. Since Revelation 12, 9 speaks of that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, we are no doubt right in identifying him as Satan, the ancient adversary of God. What we know from Genesis 3 and other passages is that there is such a being as Satan who was created perfect but fell away from virtue through pride that he carried many other angelic beings with him in his rebellious rebellion against God and he presented himself here in the garden at the beginning of the history of the human race to tempt the first man and woman. Satan has been un unsuccessful, but this is in terms of his ultimate goals. In many cases, as in the temptation of Adam and Eve, he has succeeded. He is a dangerous foe, a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. The Christian must be on guard against him. We'll begin reading at Genesis 3 at verse 1. This is God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the servant said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, 
the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Amen. New Testament reading this morning, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, beginning at verse 13 through 18. Even though the Apostle Paul's ministry, ministry in Thessalonica was brief, it is clear the people had come to believe in and hope for the reality of their Savior's return. They were living in expectation of that coming, eagerly awaiting Christ. Verse 13 indicates they were even more even agitated about some things that were happening to them that might affect their participation in it. They knew Christ's return was the climatic event in redemptive history and didn't want to miss it. The major question they had was, what happens to the Christians who die before he comes? Do they miss his return? Clearly they had an eminent view of Christ's return and the Apostle Paul had left the impression it could happen in their lifetime. Their confusion came as they were being persecuted and experienced they thought they were, that they would be delivered from by the Lord's return. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 beginning at verse 13. This is God's word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a crowd cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen. And open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. We've now spent four or five weeks, maybe a little more than that, in this magnificent chapter. The last time we were here, and I'm certainly not going to re rehearse the entire chapter, but the last time we were here, we noted that everything that God has ever created, whether celestial, in the heavens, or terrestrial, upon the earth, under the earth, uh, was created with a body that was suited to its purpose. For instance, if you look at verse 39, he notes that all flesh, is not the same. There's one kind of flesh for humans, another for various animals and birds and fish. Uh, the heavenly bodies are distinct. They're 
heavenly bodies that are significantly different than anything we see upon the earth. Uh, there's a glory associated with those heavenly bodies. There's a glory associated with earthly bodies. There's the glory of the sun, the glory of the moon, the glory of stars. Even one star differs from another star. Each has a body that's suited to its purpose. It's a rather man-centered view of everything, which God is specifically teaching us, that we, we are, in a sense, a, a, a central point of his focus, and that ought to be a great comfort to us if we're in Christ. And then in verse 42, he says, well, that's the way it is with the resurrection of the dead. Everything is going to be suited to its purpose. Uh, if we're buried, we'll be buried with perishable bodies, with dishonored bodies, with weak bodies, with natural bodies. But we're going to rise with imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual bodies. And he goes back in verse 45 and says, that first man, Adam, and that's what man means, Adam, became a living soul. But the last Adam, the second Adam, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he became a life-giving spirit. Now, first does come the natural, then the spirit. That first man was of the earth. He was a man of dust. Out of the dust, God shaped him. The second man, our Lord and Savior, was not of the dust. He's from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are all those who are of the dust. And that's why we will return to the dust if the Lord wills. But as is the man of heaven, so are all of those. Not just that man, but all of those who are of heaven. In imperishable, glorified, powerful, and spiritual bodies, suited for purpose, believers will live eternally in an intimate fellowship with God for his glory. Now, as the Apostle Paul is drawing his teaching on this to a close, he states very emphatically in verse 50, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood, the bodies that we're standing and sitting around in right now, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. For the obvious reason that the perishable can't inherit the imperishable. There's going to have to be a phenomenal change. Today's sermon is entitled, Christ's Victory Over Death. It could actually have been entitled, and it almost was, Oh Death, Where Is Your Sting? Because they are, those phrases are intimately related. God's going to transform the perishable mortal bodies of living believers and dead believers into imperishable immortal bodies which will be perfectly suited, suited to purpose for eternal life with him. It's not too direct to say that our earthly bodies are going to have to become heavenly bodies if they're going to dwell in heaven. I mean, that, even on, on a human level, that's, that's rather logical. And here's how, here's how it will happen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God,
our creator, redeemer, defender, and friend. What a great and a glorious thing it is to, to have before us the conclusion of this magnificent text. In a sense, to underscore the reality of what awaits us. How comforted, comforting it is in a day and age in which there is so much uncertainty to have the clear teaching of Scripture that for those in Christ, there awaits a life beyond comprehension. That upon this earthly plane, we are to live for the glory of God. But in the one to come, experience it in, in such a phenomenal way that our lives will reflect his glory. And his glory will be magnified for all to see. Lord, as we, as we conclude this passage, strengthen our faith, undergird our faith, clarify our faith to us. Give us confidence as we face the uncertain days ahead. As we, as we experience life upon this earth, which is temporal and ultimately will pass. Help us, Lord, through understanding passages like this to experience it as believers, leaving a testimony of faith, of confidence, and sharing that testimony in such a way that others are drawn to the truths of the scriptures, to the gracious, the gracious glory of our Lord and Savior who accomplished this victory over death for us. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Verse 51, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, a mystery scripturally is something that has previously been hidden, but has now been revealed. Classic example is in the book of Ephesians, where Paul kind of drops a bomb on everybody and says, you know, the people of God, they used to be just the Jews. It's Jews and Gentiles. And everything's going to work out just fine. Now, we, don't have, we can't really appreciate what a revolutionary thing that was. I mean, how could that possibly be? It's never been that way. I mean, there's a few exceptions here and there. We'll let a Ruth in here or a Rahab. But everybody, in fact, we're going to be the minority in this group? Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that was a mystery. Here's another mystery. And the mystery is not the next phrase, we shall not all sleep, meaning we shall not all die. I said, that, that was not a mystery, shouldn't have been a mystery to the Corinthians. And the reason I say that is because this epistle was written probably years after Paul wrote the Thessalonians, the passage that Brother Walt read to us. And in that passage, he very clearly said, he very clearly said, there's going to be some people who remain alive and there's going to be some people that are dead. And we who are alive when the Lord's return are not going to precede those that have already died in the Lord. So the fact there's going to be some that are still living, some that aren't going to die, not everybody is going to die, was not a mystery. 
That's the sort of truth that would have probably got around. So what's the mystery? The mystery is the next phrase. Now it's not, we shall not all die, but that all of us are going to be changed. Remember, he's been talking about natural bodies and heavenly bodies. Talking about natural bodies and spiritual bodies. uh, Perishable bodies and imperishable bodies. When the Lord returns, the mystery is God will suddenly transform the earthly body of every believer, whether they're living or long dead, into a heavenly body. A heavenly body that is suited to purpose. Suited for life in the hereafter, in all its glories. Now, he goes on to give us the timing of the event. And I don't mean when this is going to happen. That's, that's what everybody wants to know. When's it going to happen? Some of us used to have copies of a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Happen in 1988. I don't think I actually owned it, but I remember reading it. <laughs> There's been a lot of that, and there's still a lot of that, and people have been making foolish predictions about such things for literally centuries. This isn't telling us when that's going to happen. It's It's telling us how quickly that's going to happen. Look at verse 52. It's going to happen in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. That that doesn't really mean the blink of an eye. It means that little flash of recognition that sometimes you see in someone's eyes. It's faster than the blink of an eye. It's going to happen that quickly. That's the timing. There's not going to be any prep. There's no no way to brace for this. It's going to happen in a moment. But it's also going to happen at the last trumpet. Now that's an interesting phrase. That's a phrase that that obviously Brother Walt has already read to us too. The Lord's going to sin. The great trumpet's going to sound. As we approach Easter on a number of years, we've spent a little time and passed through the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah 14, 9 is the passage that speaks of the Lord's going to come. The king's going to come. He's going to be riding on the donkey, the foal of an ass, and he's going to be led in Jerusalem. The people are going to say, Hosanna, Hosanna. And, of course, we know about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the Sabbath before, the Sunday before the final Sabbath week. And that's exactly what happened. And we say, yes, that's a great messianic passage. Five verses later in Zechariah 9, 14, Things are going on and it's not going good for God's people. And all of a sudden, the Lord God will sound the trumpet. That's a messianic passage too. Ah, Just when it looks like it cannot get any worse because it cannot get any worse. The Lord will sound the trumpet. And when that happens, everything happens in the twinkling of an eye. Let's say. The trumpet will sound. The dead will then be raised imperishable. That's verse 52. In a moment, 
In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. All the dead in Christ will put on imperishable bodies. All the believers who've gone before. And the next phrase is, and we shall be changed. Paul's talking to the Corinthians. He's including himself. Paul believes in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. He believes when he writes this that it's very likely to happen in his lifetime. Clearly, he had taught that to the Thessalonians, as Brother Walt has mentioned to us, because they were concerned that somehow those that had gone before had missed it. They were going to miss it because it hadn't quite happened yet. Now, Paul will come to to the place where he understands it's probably not going to happen in his lifetime in 2 Timothy. But throughout his life, he, he, he lived in expectation of the Lord's return. When the trumpet sounds and the dead are raised imperishable, that meaning the dead in Christ will put on those imperishable bodies, we shall be changed. The living in Christ will also put on those same imperishable bodies. It has to happen. Verse 53 underscores that. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Immortality in an imperishable body. Can it get any better than that? Well, actually it can, but that really goes beyond where we're going today. That is phenomenal. Actually, the phrase, the wordage here for this put on is the idea of taking on all the characteristics of something. All that's good, all the virtues, all the, all the suited for purposes of it. An imperishable, immortal body. We're going to take on all the characteristics, all the virtues, all the purpose of that. What a phenomenal thing. Well, you can stop here and just, just praise God and go home and be much, much encouraged. But what does happen next? Look at verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and we know when that's going to happen, and when the Lord says it's going to happen, and it's going to happen like that, faster than that, actually. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And then an interesting thing goes on here. The Apostle Paul, who remember is a Pharisee of the Pharisee, who has studied the Old Testament scriptures basically from his very young youth and was training to be one of the lead teachers of the Hebrews. He paraphrases in a significant way two ancient prophecies. One from Isaiah 25 and one from Hosea 13. Now we'll take them in order. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Now in that particular case, he is paraphrasing and changing a slight way Hebrews, I'm sorry, Isaiah 25, 8. 
And Isaiah 25, 8, instead of saying, death is swallowed up in victory, the prophet Isaiah says, he will swallow up death forever. Do you see the correlation between forever and victory? If death is swallowed up forever, then we are talking a phenomenal victory. In fact, that passage in Isaiah 25, 8 goes on to say, hey, when he swallows up death forever, the Lord God, Jehovah God, will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. You don't get any more assurance than that. In fact, in John's vision, Revelation 7, 20, 7, 17, he sees the lamb in the midst of his people, the midst of the throne. He's their shepherd, guiding them to springs of living water. And one of the things he does is he wipes away every tear from their eyes. And in Revelation 21, 4, he not only wipes away every tear from their eyes, death shall be no more. So there'll be no more mourning, there'll be no more crying, there'll be no more pain anymore, for all of those former things have passed away. But Paul didn't finish there. He, he's, he's taken that, that ancient saying from Isaiah 25, 8 about God swallowing up death forever and transforming it into what it actually is, a phenomenal victory, but then he goes almost into a taunting mode over this. In verse 55, he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You thought you were so powerful. You've had seemingly such a, such a rule over everyone. You've brought death after death after death for centuries. Didn't matter how good people were or how long they lived, you got them in the end. Where's your sting now? Now, what he's doing there is he's quoting and paraphrasing and updating, in a sense, a portion of Hosea 13 14. And again, in Hosea 13, Bad things are happening in pre-exilic Israel. They obviously have gone their own way. God's bringing great judgment upon them. But as often happens as he's pronouncing judgment, the prophets of God pronounce, uh, include a promise. And the promise from God is, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, from the power of the grave. I shall redeem them from death. And then the prophet's quoting God, he says, O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, O grave, where is your sting? Now in those days, it was like God has no compassion left. That's the way the rest of the phrase goes. But obviously this was a precursor to a greater answer. And if you look at verse 56, we see how this works. O death, where is your sting? 
Well, now we need an explanation. And that's what those verses on the back of your bulletin are all about. Verse 56 and verse 57. The sting of death is sin. The sting of, we're all going to die unless the Lord returns first. The sting will be if we're in the presence of God with our sin upon us. That which brings about our death, because men weren't created to die. They were created to live forever. What brings about our death is sin. And here's a really significant point. The power of sin is a really, really good thing. It's the law of God. Now, we're going to have to expand upon that a bit because... How can the law of God give power to sin? Well, we know the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23. But Romans 7.8 tells us, in fact, I want to go over to Romans. I should read it rather than just, just that. But let me read it in, in its context, beginning in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Paul is not saying that the law is sin. Yet if it hadn't been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, through the law of God, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. It's almost like as soon as I was told not to do it, I wanted to do it. Like the don't touch, the paint's wet sign. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it I died. But the law is holy. And the commandment's holy and righteous and good. How could it have this effect upon me? Well, the effect is produced by what's there in chapter 7, verse 8 of Romans. Apart from the law, sin lies absolutely dead. Now look at Romans 5. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came in the world through one man, we all understand that, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Got that. In fact, all of us understand that. These aren't hard concepts to get a hold of. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Now there's, an, there's, there's more there than you realize. I know how I always looked at this, at least for a long time. 
So I suspect a lot of us would say, yeah, but, but what I don't understand is verse 14, yet death reigned when people died from Adam to Moses, but the law wasn't given until Moses. It says, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Adam was the type of the one who was to come. I know I've taken you off into a little, a little trail here now. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping things will clear up and I'll get us back. The first man, Adam, and the first woman, the woman that is going to be named Eve, but it's not Adam and Eve in the garden to begin with. It's Adam and woman. Woe, Adam. Let's call it that way. All right. She's going to be called Eve because Adam believes the promise that she'll be the mother of all the living. That's what Genesis 2, Genesis 3.20 tells us. They were created in a state of innocence. They lived in perfect fellowship with one another, and they lived in perfect fellowship with God. The text very plainly tells us they were both naked and they were not ashamed. God would walk in the garden in the cool of the day, or they'd hear the wind and know God was in the garden, depending on your translation there, and they were not afraid because they weren't ashamed. There was nothing to be ashamed of. It was a common practice. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. That's verse 56. The power of sin is the law. Is the serpent in the garden? Yes. How long has he been there? I don't know. Why didn't he, why didn't he seduce him immediately? And I'm not saying he didn't. It may have happened very quickly. But he could not seduce them into sin until God had issued the law to them. Because the power of sin is the law. What law did they have? Genesis 2.17 Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And once the law had been laid down, the serpent came. The first thing he says, has God really told you? And he gets parroted right back to him. It was a slightly different version, but basically the same thing. And he says, no, that's not the way it's going to happen. You won't die. The law... The one command, don't eat of that particular tree, energized sin. Because God had promised if you eat of it, you will spiritually die and begin to physically die. And it empowered Satan. It energized sin to bring about death. And it empowered Satan to give him a weapon. A weapon with which he could enslave all of mankind. There's in a sense a, a triad, a, a three-part, three very deadly 
let's just say a deadly triad. It's law and sin and death. And where there's the law, sin can kill. Does that make the law bad? Is it, was it a bad thing for God to say, eat up everything in this garden to your heart's content, but don't eat of this. I warn you, do not eat of this, because the day you do, you will surely die. Was that a bad thing? How did he know they had? Because they were afraid. They were alienated from God. Why were they afraid? Because they were naked, but they'd been naked all along. What was the problem with that? Because all of a sudden they saw it as a problem. There were no problems. Everything was very good in the garden. What happened is they'd violated the law of God. And the guilt of that was upon them. They committed sin. And the wages of sin is death. Now apart from the law, sin is absolutely dead. But once the law is given and we violate the law, death's alive. Sin's alive. Sin's powerful. It's controlling. It's energized. And Satan wields it. And who knows how long from now we'll be working our way through 2 Corinthians. Lord willing. And we will see when we get to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, the law kills. But the Spirit of God gives life. Well, now you understand how it happens. We'll hear it described in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 as the ministry of death. In this case, it is talking about the law of Moses because it says the ministry of death is carved in letters and stone. In fact, in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 3, it's called the ministry of condemnation. The law is always good and holy, but it's also those things. It's given by God so we know when we transgress his will, when we transgress his law, and we know the consequences. Okay, so the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks, verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us a grace gift, the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul opened the epistle to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.4, he says, I give thanks to God always for you Corinthians because, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He was writing to us. He was speaking to the saints here. He says, I'm giving thanks to you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. And long ago when we opened chapter 15 and we went over what the gospel was, by the time we reached the fourth, the third verse, we, we understood that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. In fact, we didn't cover this in our study of Hebrews because it was, it was earlier than our passage 
But the gift of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, is recounted in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 thusly. Since the children, since men and women share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning the Son of God, partook of the same things. That's the incarnation. He, in his flesh and in his blood, he lived a righteous life. He fulfilled all righteousness, up to and including asking his cousin John to baptize him for a public identification. Why did he do that? Hebrews 2.14 continues, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through all their lives were subject to lifelong slavery to him. To deliver fallen mankind from its fear of death. He died for our sins to deliver us from the fear of death because once we no longer fear death, Satan is no longer our master. Sin is no longer our master. We have been delivered from that. We do not have to obey. In fact, that's the reason God sent his son in the fullness of time in the first place. Romans 4.25 tells us he was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised up so that we could be declared righteous for our justification. And if that's the case, then a passage like Romans 8.35 and following can just applies to all believers. What can personally, who can possibly separate us from the love of Christ? Is any tribulation to come, any distress, any persecution, any famine, any nakedness, any danger, any sword? And all those things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. So neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, if you understand that, I'm not saying you long for death. No one would long for death. But we're all going to face it. And you face it holding on to truths like this, and you understand, if in the will of the God, that's your portion that day, that just opens the next chapter. As you go further up and further in, in C.S. Lewis's phrase, every chapter is new and better for all eternity. Note how Paul concludes this chapter. Therefore, my beloved brothers. You mean those guys have been fighting? I mean, you spent chapter after chapter talking about all the terrible things they were saying about one another, taking each other to court, suing one another, carrying on all kinds of crazy ideas in the temples around the area here. They had all these weird ideas you've had to straighten out again and again and again, and some things they were clearly hiding from you, and you, had to, you found out other ways and had to address. My beloved brothers. Because all the, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Another way to say that, a longer way to say that, is stand firm in absolute confidence God will resurrect the bodies of all dead believers and 
change all living believers. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be immovable. Don't like, don't let anybody or anything sway you from this. You've got the word of God. You've got the promise of God. You've got the promise of God who cannot change. It's impossible for God to lie. He's given you this assurance. Stand in it. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Except to do the work of God for which you're still alive. And that's the way the, the last verse concludes. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, exactly what would that be? Well, one way to look at it would be 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do. That includes what you eat and what you drink and how you go about it. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Because here's one last thing you can know for certain. In the Lord, in the Lord, your labor will not be in vain. Whether you have days, weeks, months, years, decades, or a century of life left, the witness of your life as a believer is never for a moment meaningless. What God has done and what he is doing makes your life purposeful. We are to live purposeful lives for the glory of God. So brethren, let us live our present life in the light of our future life. Live it for the glory of God. And by the grace of God, let's live it together. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, how, how comforting, how strengthening this passage is. What a grace gift it is to, to be united in our faith around such promises. To be, to be given these certainties. To be given clarity about these certainties. To look forward to what you are doing, come what may. With the, with the assurance that we will be delivered ultimately into your presence in bodies fitted to be in your presence for all eternity, all by the grace of God and through the loving gift of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we say, amen.